So I've uh, personally found it very helpful to um, practice together today. I feel a little bit more human and grounded and present. Um, Due to being together, just this collective presence of... uh, going into this form together and entering the silence and then the schedule and allowing that to carry us and helping us to uh, slow down and to unhook from the momentum of what we usually or I am usually um, sort of kind of wedded into, momentum of what's going on around in the world and then the reactivity around that and um, you know, it's quite stressful really a lot of it and uh, having traveled to and changing just recently a couple of weeks ago a bit less changing hemispheres and continents climates it um, takes a while to arrive and to land. It's a bit like teaching in our little hermitage in the mountains of KwaZulu-Natal on the border of Lesotho in South Africa. It's a bit like, and then arriving here, it's like getting off a bamboo bicycle and stepping into a Rolls Royce. <laughs> it's a little stunning, really, the level of... <laughs> the, the level of... Um, you know, fine attunement, attunement to run these retreats here. You know, see all the work that's gone in over many years to get get uh, get that level of subtlety and sensitivity to what's needed to help support a container for this work. So when one sits in that presence, sits in this hall, and we all sit in this together, we're sitting in a history of quite a a lot of depth practice and it's very helpful and it's very, very lovely. It's a bit more raw where we usually practice. Dhammagiri, a bit more turbulent. It's slightly hanging on by one's fingernails feeling. (laughs) Um, It's very real in many ways because of that, but it is nice to come into this, this environment and feel also in the land here there's a lot more a stillness and settledness. In uh, where we are in South Africa, it feels very, even though the land is very ancient, the mountains are very ancient. The original peoples there, the Khoisan, San peoples, who left their paintings, which we can observe uh, right on the mountain where Damagiri is. In the mountain, there's the uh, the rain beast that they painted uh, on the back of the mountain it still feels like that that uh, mythical being lives within the mountain. The shaman would control that to to help um, control the weather patterns. The mountains called Unvuleni, which means place of rain, also place of openings, and there's definitely a lot of very dramatic weather patterns which all adds to the sense of that um, turbulence, big storms, thunderstorms, lightning, rain, 
And very every day, the skies change quite dramatically often. So it's, uh, it's coming into this atmosphere and just feeling this uh, stability. And it's nice, although it's, um, you know, it's constructed. It's a constructed stability so that we can do this work together. And these retreats, they're very important spaces, but we're not under the illusion that the, the world around us is that stable. Um, probably never was that stable. <laughs> uh, certainly doesn't feel very stable now. So much is really on the precipice. Um, and that in, it, in and of itself uh, is stressful, very activating for our bodies, for our minds and our emotions. Uh, the body is an earth body and it feels very deeply, whether it's, we're conscious of that or not, it feels and resonates with what's happening in the earth, what's happening in the human, the mind is part of a web of human consciousness. So being plugged into all of that generates nowadays, I think for a lot of people, a lot of very um, difficult and hard to be with um, responses and reactions which is healthy actually to feel what's happening even if it's not easy to feel that but it's not so healthy to be activated and into patterns of stress and and uh, reactivity and overwhelm which is what can very easily happen when things are so unstable and we lose touch with the ground So this is a very important space and I'm very grateful that we can do this work. I'm very grateful to all the people that help this happen and have helped this happen. Because I know what goes into supporting Dharma centers. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of labor of love and uh, sweat and tears. <laughs> and they're complex spa- spaces to actually hold and to sustain they're not they're, they're sort of unique spaces in a way, um, and we don't see the underbelly of that so much when we sit in the hall or the work that's gone on, but we can feel it. Um, so I hope that during this week we can really take advantage, and that you particularly, having come, taken the time out and committed your time and energy and resources to come here, can really allow this space to support you and to nourish you and to rejuvenate you, um, both with by being in the silence and being together here, and also for us all to contemplate and use the teachings and practices of this really wonderful and holy dharma. It's a great privilege, really, to have access to this um, and to be able to have the security enough to do this work. There's so many beings that don't have that, as we've seen uh, recently, just um, people fleeing from war zones and trying to flood into um, Europe and other places. Um, I read a poem the other day of of a woman from Syria that had, you know, it's a very poignant poem where she talks about that, you know, she wants to 
um, put makeup on and went out and had children and had a husband, still has children, had a husband and had a job and friends and sit in the cafe and just like us and then finds themselves um, taught English in the university and then finds themselves stranded um, as a a migrant, refugee and people treating her as if she's some sort of alien speaking very slow English although she's fluent assuming that she doesn't know what she knows and it's just, you know, a flick of fate really that, that that's not our situation right now could be one day it's all very uncertain but it's not right now um, we have instead this kind of a space um, and this sort of support. And we, we take it for granted uh, very easily. Um, and, and that's a privilege, really, to be able to do that. But um, the Buddhist teaching, he taught for us to very much um, be real about the human condition and to, to know that this life that we have is like a... A, um, a flame, a candle flame in the wind. Yeah, it wasn't Elton John that said that. That was actually originally the Buddha. <laughs> he ripped it off. <laughs> but it is uh, flickering, you know, this life, this lifespan. And so, in this practice, um, we are here to be present and to enjoy the support, and to relax, and to be nourished. But we're also here to awaken, to use these teachings to awaken, and to part of that awaken is to be more real in, in all meanings and levels of that word, both realistic about what is, what is involved in our human incarnation, uh, particularly in terms of, of the uncertainty that we face, that we live within, and to learn to be more open to that rather than so defended from it, um, so that we can, you know, develop uh, a deeper refuge and skill in working um, and allowing the impact of the truth of uncertainty to mature us and bring forth very important human qualities like uh, compassion and wisdom, but also to really enter what is real, actually, to use this time, because this was the quest of the Buddha, to use this time not in vain, but to use this time that we have in our human birth to contemplate uh, what, is, what is real, what is a real refuge, and, and how can that inform us in ways of being here in this life, in this world. So the practice of being real begins by being present. So in essence, although there's a lot of stuff to say about the Dharma, in essence it's actually something very simple about it. It's a simple practice of being present. And though it's very simple, it's not always necessarily that easy because of the momentum of what pulls us and um, the habits of the mind and the 
the difficulty of being with what's gone before as we stop and feel that energetically within our body and within our moods and within the states of mind. Uh, so, and we're under the sway a lot of the time of, a, of an illusion, of many illusions. And one of those illusions is that somewhere in the future it's going to be better or we're going to get there, whatever there uh, means. We have a sort of list, probably an internal list of what there is and what uh, configures a sense of arriving to there. And we chase that elusiveness, you know, that elusive place, either in our meditation, that elusive there, you know, deep jhana or liberation, whatever metaphors that we work within or in our life, in our world. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of human consciousness is bound into this. We're getting there. <laughs> you sort of wonder, have to wonder eventually where, where, there is, where that is exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, here we are. We wanted to get to the retreat and here we are. And we're probably already planning how to get out of it. <laughs> or maybe the next one. Yeah, so uh, if we don't awaken to that, momentum then we are actually caught in it we're caught in that illusion and it robs us actually undermines us from really being here and being more real so this presence because the irony is even if we get there in the future it it so happens that we're still here because there really isn't a future actually you know there is you know we project that and live towards that, but it's always here, even when we arrive there, it's still here. Uh, which is one of the, the illusions that, that we have. So, in, you know, we begin to see that as we slow down and we stop, and to disinvest ourselves from that illusion and from that momentum, stop putting so much investment in it. That's not to say we can't strategically plan and so on, um, that can happen, but emotionally, psychologically, on every other level to invest so heavily in an outcome and hoping um, that will resolve everything and realizing that, you know, at a certain point we begin to realize the fallacy of that to some degree and allow ourselves to really instead, you know, be, be here as fully as we can. So this is being present is the practice of being mindful. This word now that's there out in the society translated from the original term. Um, Mindfulness, not actually perhaps optimum translation, but I don't think we can do much about that anymore. (laughs) It's been pretty cemented. But uh, the sati or shmeti in Sanskrit has this uh, meaning of remembering or you know, gathering back or remembering, remembering to be here. Remember, bring back what has been split into here, into this reality. Because even if we're you know, in the future and we're here, there is one consistent reality. 
and that is this consciousness, something that's always here, that when we're asleep, it appears in a different level of consciousness, but what is always here, whether we're in the future or when we were in the past, um, or we're thinking about past and future, is that's dependent upon here, and that here is dependent upon being conscious and being present here. So to remember to be conscious, or that which enables us to remember is consciousness itself. This is a practice to, to, uh, to be conscious. As Kilisara was saying, yesterday the, the training in mindfulness begins, training of returning here in the simplicity of being conscious begins by learning to withdraw our attention from its usual preoccupations. And so when the sutra sutta opens with the training of the four foundations of mindfulness, it encourages first thing is to learn to withdraw the, the, from the longing and the clinging and the covetousness and the grief for the world. So today we've been practicing that. Because, you know, certainly when we think about the world, the, it evokes those, generally speaking, it tends to evoke those kinds of energies, those responses, a, a sense of longing for something, a sense of covetousness, something we still want to get, and, and also disappointment for what didn't quite happen and, you know, perhaps increasingly, as we understand what's happening in our world more and more profoundly and get more real about that, perhaps a deep sense of grief um, for many things that are beyond our control and we have to witness two terrible things that are going down. So it can be a grief. And yet... It's really real to feel those things and to to experience that. And yet, there's a way of being present where we can be with the world without being so um, pulled into a suffering around the world. It doesn't mean to say we can't feel, we can't honor what we feel, we can't respond. But there's a practice, this practice of mindfulness, as the Buddha said, is for the purification of beings, is for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, is for the disappearance of suffering and grief, is for the attainment of the true way, a way of awakening, and for the realization of nibbana, of that which actually is untouched by change, untouched by death, untouched by impermanence, realization of the Nibbāna, the Amata Dhatu, as Kirisara mentioned last night, this deathless element, the unchanging. It's for that most um, subtly that this practice of mindfulness was taught by the Buddha as a pathway, as a way into this realization
realization begins with very simply of withdrawing the mind and being here, being here as best we can. And in a way, that's it. (laughs) I mean, there is a lot more to it, but essentially, it's that simple to just show up as best we can uh, for what's here. And in this in this practice, at this in this particular focus, this part of the retreat, to show up for ourselves, actually, this, this we call ourselves, this body and the feelings and the momentum of the habits and uh, history that we're with, all of that. It's like you know, trying to steady, steady within the flow of momentum movement, steadying through this practice of being conscious. This consciousness that actually brings reality. It's this consciousness that's real. This consciousness has the attribute being conscious is has the attribute of awareness or it's called buddhi, which means a knowingness. It's a knowing awareness, intelligence. Not necessarily the kind of academic intelligence about knowing lots of stuff. That's one kind of intelligence, but just in a way it's more to do with unknowing, I suppose, a sort of a stripping away of all that we know and assume to be the case. Because we often live much more through our assumptions than through what's really here. So the knowingness is is a kind of a a, naked, a nakedness, perhaps, in relationship to being here. It's a, a way of realizing we're here, but perhaps we're here and we, we don't really know <laughs> what this is all about, <laughs> what's going on, <laughs> you know, because it is a little strange, <laughs> this thing called life. And I don't know why we think we think we know what's going on because most of the time I don't know what's going on. I'm sure most people don't really know, but we pretend we know what's going on. That's pretty, you know, that's probably quite good that we do. Otherwise we might completely freak out. Oh, what's going on? (laughs) This is so weird. (laughs) So to to be real uh, is okay to realize it's not a sort of personality failure. It's actually being real to know we don't know always, can't quite grasp, grasp it, keeps eluding us, keeps shape-shifting. And yet when we actually open to that, there's something quite um, grounding, release, a relief. Because what's, what we can know, what we can be with, is just this in- invitation to be present. To be present. As uh, said, Buddha said is that in this being present, it's actually recognizing, beginning to recognize what is real. Because we take what is unreal to be real, and what is real to be unreal. What is unreal we think is real. Uh, the 
it's not that things are really unreal, but there's a sort of, you know, the dreams and the thoughts and the ideas and the momentum of our life and our memories and the projections into the future, all of that we take to be very, very real, all the stories, all the histories, layers and layers of it. It's very powerful, has a very powerful reality and shaping of the mind. Um, and not only of the projected world outside, but even of the projected inner world of the self. We assume all sorts of narratives as true about ourselves. All sorts of things that we've been told or we heard or we created stories about ourselves. You know, and we have, and it's, and then, you know, and they're not exactly un, untrue. You know, our, our identities, our roles, our psychology, our, our different ways that we would define ourselves. But you can't really uh, hold it. You can't really grasp it. And if you look through the eye of insight, you you have to acknowledge that there's there's you know that there's a sort of uh, flimsiness there and transparency. It doesn't really hold. It doesn't really ultimately define and capture the definition of yourself or the world or each other. But we live within definitions and it's very limiting of who we think we are and who we think everyone else is. And in the same way, what is actually real, this very stark and unbounded, undefined, presence of consciousness, conscious awareness, we assume is not that real. (laughs) We don't give it any uh, credibility. And yet, without that, nothing else would exist. If we weren't conscious, we wouldn't be aware now. Mm. So as one great saint, Sri Nisargadatta said, great realized being, he said it's a bit like, you know, and as a metaphor for getting a sense of this territory, it's a bit like when we go to a a movie theater and you see the screen and it's playing projected as a projection of light and sound and image and it creates a narrative on this screen. And then we get very, very engrossed in that narrative and we weep and we get frightened and we react and we cry and it's and then suddenly it stops and it's like oh that was so real wasn't it when we were there in the movie it was so very very real and we talk about it and we give oscars (laughs) 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 and so on and yet when it stops the movie stops there's just the blank screen and you know, and and what enabled that to actually be projected? If we turned round and looked at the projector, we'd see actually there's this light. This light that projects, and from that light, then it projects through a prism, of forms and colours and narrative. Um, this is a little bit like uh, this consciousness you know, projecting. It's projecting the mind, projecting the stories that we have and that we live within, so they're so very real. I mean, I do think I remember being in South Africa and there's certain things there that I really am engrossed in. You know, the narratives, the politics, the social, economic processes, the, 
you know, all the things that go on there and the hermitage and suffer like mad about some of it and get elated about some of it. Love it. Then I leave and it's like, well, where did that go? (laughs) Can't hardly remember it. But it's real. It's real when we're in it. You know, but then, you know, I start to sit and practice and then it, you know, it starts to dissolve. You dissolve and you start to see the space, like that blank screen, the space that's happening within of this mind. And then behind that, there's just this illumination. What's illuminating it is this conscious awareness. So this practice of being real, of remembering, of returning of showing up, of being present, is the practice of being aware, conscious. But withdrawing the mindfulness, the training of attention, which in a way is like at the, I don't know, you can't really, you can't really define spatially consciousness. You can't really define consciousness by any ways that we usually define things, in time or in space, or by any particular quality, and perhaps this knowingness is the, you know, the most you could say, perhaps. Knowingness has a knowingness about it, but you could say central, although that's just a metaphor, is this attentiveness, is an attention, you know, just mindfulness, or sometimes I like to think of it as the outpost of conscious awareness, because there's different levels of consciousness, we're conscious, but there's an unconscious, there's a lot we're not conscious of. It maybe comes to us through dreams, or comes to us through intuition, or things that we don't even know that we feel that sometimes appear in different ways, and we realize, oh, that was unconscious to me, and now I know it's, it's here, it's become illuminated to me. And then if we look even more deeply, you know, in the, in the Mahayana Sutta, they talk about the essence of consciousness, the Shurangama Sutra, essence of consciousness being um, pure essence of consciousness as light, brilliant, illuminating. In the Theravada, they talk about the primary um, luminosity consciousness and then in the you know and then there's this sort of like even perhaps beyond that there's a like looking out into space there's a, a you know, profound mystery darkness almost like dark matter <laughs> holding it all together apparently I don't know it gets it starts to get very very strange at a certain point you don't and when you read the quantum physicists that are exploring this territory, you know, it's really hard to know what they're talking about because you start to get into these really mystical spaces. One of the father of quantum physics, Max Planck, said, said this, All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of matter. So this is like a, a, an outpost of human exploration. We've gone out into the objective world. 
the world of what we consider matter, and we consider matter as, as dead, something we exploit, something we extract from, something we explode in these great sort of, what's that thing that they're exploding, atoms and quirks and so on, to try and see what is actually at the heart of matter. You know, it's all looking at it objectively, but there is this beginning, just beginning to look at, well, who's looking at all of this? What's the subject? Who's the subject? And this exploration of, of consciousness itself, and to begin to realize this is a stunning, stunning insight, actually, that the collapse of the, the so-called external is different from the so-called internal, this this you know, conscious me, and it's all objective out there, and it's sort of other and different, as so that starts to collapse. Then they see the Buddha also talked about this collapse of subject-object. It's a primary, uh, the primary division generates this experience of separateness and fear and longing. As that starts to collapse, what happens? So to explore, this is what we're exploring. Exploring in the mindfulness practice, we start to use the mindfulness attention in a particular way. We start to extract ourselves from our illusions, from the momentum of the mind by training attention around which focalizes awareness, training attention to be here in a very simple way, just to be with the body. For example, this is where we're starting today. Being with body and breath. So it's a... We're not really that often in this way with our bodies. We're more often with our bodies through our, um, the prism of our, of our assumptions and our beliefs and our conditioning and our reactivity. You know, so we sort of live a little bit removed uh, from the body. And we have all sorts of views about our body, <laughs> all sorts of um, ways that we relate to it. Mostly, often, quite unconsciously, it's just this thing that goes along until it plays up and it draws our attention. And we sort of put food in and water and excretes and so on. So it's, but it's a very different practice, a very interesting way that the Buddha began this journey into reality by coming not saying this, this is matter, it's not important, we're just going to go into some little rose cloud of spiritual thing, you know, and just float away in some nibbanic peace. I mean, that's what I first wanted to do when I came across meditation. I just want to get on a cloud, nice, lovely cloud, and just float away. Bye, sweet world. <laughs> it's nice knowing you. Can't get out quick enough. <laughs> You know, so it was, it was, I have to confess, it was a shock to be, sit in one of these 10 days retreats and just be told over and over again, go to the sensations of your body. It was like, no way did I want to do that. 
Um, it wasn't easy. It's not easy to be embodied. You know, we spend a lot of time being disembodied. But it's very profound. Um, and it's very healing. It's very healing because we're actually coming into relationship. The mindfulness is, removes us from a false relationship into a direct relationship to our actual experience. So we're sort of moving from, you know, the projections onto this body. Very, very um, complex to work through or to even be aware of because there's a lot of views that we pick up that basically say there's an ideal kind of body and this isn't it. (laughs) 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 And I don't know anyone, even if we might think, well, they've got a great body, usually internally there's still this feeling it isn't it. Yeah, so we can assume that no one feels that they have the ideal body. Um, or if you do, it's a very fleeting momentary delusion. <laughs> Bound up with suffering. <laughs> so these are bodies and this is what they're like. you know. Um, and so first thing is mindfulness is just allowing us to open to our embodied experience as it is and seeing the body less through the prism of a me and what I want it to be, or the or how it's con- you know how I feel it should be according to the social conditioning, to the industry billion dollar industry that feeds off our discontent and lack of acceptance of our embodied appearance, which is all very cynical, really. You know, to come into relationship with the body by being able to feel the body breathing. Like when we were doing the Qigong today, we just at the end, you know, we we just put our hands over our heart. And I always find that part of the end of the Qigong practice. Because I feel, when I do that, I feel the the fluttering of of the heartbeat and the breath. And it all feels rather fragile. It all feels rather, you know, um, I just feel a sense of, momentary love I don't often have a sense of love for my body but for a moment maybe just by actually bringing the hands and feeling the breath I'm in touch with the realness of my body of this body and it's you know it's it's a very sort of softening um, experience softening the mind So in this practice, you know, we're really encouraging ourselves in this first foundation to come into relationship, first of all, with our body in a very, in a very kind way. You know, often on these retreats, we, we do, you know, we go through the gathering practice, samadhi, the insight practice, wisdom, and then you sort of like tack on the end, now this is the meta day. <laughs> and, um, but really we should begin with this quality of kindness. Uh, meta, the Sanskrit word, metri, it means literally to soften, but in particular a softening of the heart. A softening around the defenses that we have and the hardness that we hold 
the views that we have, the judgments that projected, I mean, they project outward, but they fiercely project inward um, on, you know, what's not good enough. Body's not good enough. What I'm feeling's not right. Meditation's not good enough. It's a sort of ongoing litany of not good enoughs. <laughs> it's quite sad, really, that we that we that we all tend to be conditioned so profoundly in not feeling good enough. And I think it's partly to do with this this split, this split where the sacred has been removed from the embodied, from matter, consciousness. And consciousness, in a way, it's the space of the sacred. So just the, this very simple practice of being with the body and breathing, it's like a reclamation, we're reclaiming a sort of sacredness, which is <coughs> a world that's devoid of that, because we don't feel the sacred, then we can abuse, abuse the world of matter. I love this story, and I know some of you have heard it, but when... Um, a friend of ours who was a monastic was in hospital in Bangkok practicing as a, a monk. And he had, as we all did in those early days, had all these internalized ideas of what it was to be, a, to be a sort of really tough practitioner. And being in hospital with his knees in plaster and having knee operations and and the possibility of not sitting cross-legged again in this this perfect posture was really not on his agenda as the ideal for what it would be to be a sort of tough monk. So he's feeling very, very sorry for himself in this state, you know, imagining himself sitting in an armchair where everyone else is sitting on a just a, a thin cloth and sitting there all night in this sort of perfect posture, and he'd have to sit on some sort of in the northeast of Thailand, in those monasteries, that really wasn't that on, um, wasn't considered that good practice, sit on the chair. <laughs> so anyway, sitting, laying there feeling very sorry, and Ajahn Chah, a teacher from a wonderful master, came to see him and sort of leaned over and said, how's it going? And he said, oh, Ajahn Chah, it shouldn't be like this, really shouldn't be like this. And Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, looked at him, looked it over and looked him up and down and said, well, you know, if it shouldn't be like this, it really wouldn't be like this. <laughs> so so we, we approach our experience. This is a lack of metta. It's a very deeply programmed um, judgment about how it shouldn't be. We know we really could write a big essay about how it shouldn't be. Um, and how it should be. And metta doesn't imply that we that we um, approve of how it is, or we like how it is, but it, the softening means a profound acceptance of how it is. It doesn't either mean that we're not going to change 
how it is, but sometimes unless we can really accept and hear how it is, then our efforts to change how it is come from aversion and aggression, even subtle. We have this very subtle Buddhist (laughs) aggression, (laughs) passive aggression. I'm being very Buddhist. I said, would you please mind if you could (laughs) back off? Lots of metta. (laughs) It doesn't mean to say that we can't change or we can't have strength or we can't challenge. But we begin in this, this, in this sort of safe space, beginning with this being, ourselves. When we come, become more real, we come, bring this consciousness, this extraordinary gift of self-awareness that can reflect. Being mindful is also another way of saying can reflect on our experience wisely. Is to, to really deeply can we accept how it is in each moment? And that's a part of the practice. It's a repetition. We repeat. It's not like we just do it once and then we go into that shape because we go back into the shape of our reactivity. So it's a repeating practice. How is it now? Take a deep breath into how is it now? Yeah, maybe there's resistance. Maybe there's tiredness. Maybe there's... You know, it's enough now. Maybe there's peace. But before we start reacting and struggling, it's like the metta, the softening, the opening into how it is, the accepting, the allowing. And this begins to ground us in a very, very powerful way. It brings its own strength, its own uh, freedom. So I believe that uh, Kirisara mentioned last night the, the journey of the Buddha, which is a very archetypal journey in so many ways. In the moment when he tried to crush everything he was feeling, this body tried to starve it, tried to um, remove himself from its demands, even the breathing try to remove himself from contact, try to control consciousness and to refine subtle states and not experience coarse states. And realizing in the end, he just came out with a statement saying this, this is a, something like, um, Actually, I can't remember, but something like this is a useless way. This is, there's no fruit in this. I'm sure there's some fruit, you know, you learn some patience, some strength. But it's not the way of a liberation, joy, of freedom. And then the moment we said, might there be another way? And then he had the dream, or the memory. It's, from the, it's like this moment when, when we give up. And there's into that, it's again that space of not, having to know it all, not having to control it all, not having to have a strategy, just being open. It's a very, it's a sort of like the, um, 
necessary movement to then allow what happened for him is the, a memory that led him into a, a, a radically different way. If that hadn't have happened, we wouldn't have the teaching that we're using and we'll be using on this retreat all these years later. And that was a, just came out of completely a different space, place, which was the memory of the child. And it's a very, you know, archetypally, that's a very powerful image something childlike, open. Surely we must remember, <laughs> you know, those moments of, of awe. I used to, you know, we can all think of ch- childhood, maybe all the struggles and difficulties, but also there's something very innocent and open. I used to love to, with my father, look up at the night sky and just, um, I didn't have a particularly easy relationship with my father. That was one of the moments, and we would just go, wow, wow, it's a mystery. <laughs> that sort of open mind. So it's a quality of being present, but with an open mind, curious, hasn't got it all worked out. But also, another incident happened at that moment, which was also completely. Out of a, out of the mystery it wasn't strategy, and that was when Sujata came to him. Sujata was this woman; she'd been watching this guy, Siddhartha, doing all these ascetic practices and quite admiring. Like, well, he's really tough. He's really sincere. He's pretty committed. But she also saw him falling over. Sorry about that. When he was um, nearly dying, you know, as Kisara was saying, he scratched his tummy and he felt his backbone, he scratched his head and his hair would fall out, etc., etc. So, you know, she thought, well, you know, I better give this guy something to eat. So he, uh, she bought some milk rice, as the story goes, and uh, offered it to the Buddha. And of course... His fellow ascetics, his five fellow ascetics, who became the first five disciples later on in the story, they looked at him and said, oh, this is really, I can't believe that he's thinking of accepting um, this to eat something and from a woman. It's disgraceful. Um, But the Buddha in that moment, you know, maybe his mind was very open. And it's a sort of, again, it's a metaphor, an archetypal moment of the, the feminine a woman representing embodiment, the earth, world of form, offering nourishment. Take nourishment, because you're not going to do this if you don't nourish yourself. You're going to die. And, you know, a moment he realized, might there be another way? This was part of the other way. So he accepted that, took nourishment, had the strength then to continue on to Buddhgaya or Gaya, sat under the tree, which was then led to his awakening, at which point, because he had done that, the, he was abandoned by his ascetics. And perhaps it was a merciful moment because he was left completely alone, then completely freed from all known ways to explore this journey of consciousness. And so archetypally, in a way, it's this moment from moving from this control, warrior, being in charge, thinking one's knowing where one's going into more the 
archetype of the lover, the softening, the opening, the unknowing, the receptive, the mystery. So it's an important metaphor for us in our journey of practice. To become present implies all of that, to be present. And to be present in a particular way, yes, there's a tension. There is a skill in withdrawing the mind from its preoccupations, from its investments in the future, from its grief and sorrow for the past, disappointment. It is a practice to, to again and again and again to withdraw the mind and come to this one breath, a deep breath, feeling the body, arriving into our embodied experience. So that's a skill, and, and yet within that there's also this softening, there's this willingness to surrender into just the simplicity of not having to know it all, of just being willing to show up to be present here. Like that, lover energy means this deep, accepting, allowing of our body, particularly, and what's felt. As we start to engage that with our contemplative awareness, allowing the awareness to contemplate the experience, it's like this. And then uh, sometimes the unexpected comes to visit. Another thing Nisargadatta, this great realized being, said that reality comes in the unexpected. nice to contemplate that, not necessary from our strategies. So tomorrow morning we'll be offering for those that would like to join us, you're very welcome to join us and you're also very welcome not to do this practice if it doesn't speak to you in which case you can join us a bit later for the sitting, the early sitting. But for the very first practice in the morning will be a a bowing practice for 10 minutes. And you can come and just listen. You can sit and just uh, listen. You can bow the full-length bow that we'll be doing if you wish. You can just um, do a half-length bow according to what your body capacity is. It's, uh, we're using a mantra, and we have a recording of that mantra. It's quite a complex melody. It's from a Chinese monastic school, Mahayana school. The mantra is to Kuan Yin, Namo Kuan Shu Yin Pusa. And that mantra is second on the mantra page. It's the second mantra. This is Namo Kwan Shu Yin Pusa. The Dabe in, in brackets, parentheses, isn't, we don't recite that. 
Namo, I pay homage, sometimes translated as I return my life. Kwan is the one that regards, listens to. Yin is uh, sound, sure, it's the world, the one that regards the sounds of the world. So this is another way of talking about conscious presence, the intelligence of profound, compassionate, merciful, responsive heart, aware heart, Kuan Yin. Ultimately, we have these beautiful statues here, Kuan Yin, beautiful one there of her holding her wish-fulfilling pearl, one at the back. But Kuan Yin isn't a statue. Kuan Yin is the alive, conscious, aware, intelligent, responsive, listening heart. So when we bow, we're bowing into that heart. We're taking all our strategies, all our fears, all our worries, all our hopes, all our disappointments. We take all of that back in the bow into this listening, into this presence, and we allow ourselves to trust that. We put our trust there. Because it's this heart, this intelligence, this awareness, this reality that will show us another way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.